This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. In about six minutes on our show, Jacqueline Froelich explores what the dry summer means for Beaver Lake. We can tell you today's heat means you need to be incredibly careful if you're outside. Fort Smith could experience temperatures of 108 with heat index values of 111. Northwest Arkansas expected to have highs around 102, heat index readings of 104. For the Arkansas River Valley, there is an excessive heat warning in effect until 8 tonight, meaning very hot temperatures and high humidity will combine to create a dangerous situation in which heat illnesses are possible. For Northwest Arkansas, it's a heat advisory until 8 tonight. We start our show today with a byproduct of the poultry industry, chicken houses. Although tearing down a chicken house might seem as simple as pushing it over and cleaning up the remains, Practice 360 is a conservation procedure meant to help close these structures and remediate soil. KUAF's Anna Pope reports the University of Missouri and Enviroscape's Ecological Consulting is researching how Northwest Arkansas farmers use the program and what happens to their out-of-commission chicken houses. Millions of birds a year are raised in Arkansas's poultry houses, and during this time, litter is built up. Arkansas generates about 1.3 metric tons of poultry litter annually, concentrated in the northwest region of the state. This can cause problems with water quality because it can add high concentrated nutrients to the soil. Practice 360 is offered in the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Natural Resource Conservation Service. Farmers can apply for cost share assistance and technical help to take down the houses, manage waste, build up soil quality, and incorporate native plants. Jake Warsham, a graduate student at the University of Missouri, is researching why some Arkansas farmers leave the industry, what is done with the leftover houses, and if they know about the conservation program. In terms of uh, in the mid-Missouri, Arkansas, it's like a program that is available, but I, I haven't heard of anybody who's ever actually gone through it and used it. I've heard of farmers who have done it themselves. One farmer I interviewed had already removed his barns and remediated the soil by himself. This research is for a project part of a conservation innovation grant. Although Warsham has not heard from producers using the practice in the region, there are some who have. Warsham is gathering this information through a survey and interviews with producers. It's been a year and he says getting responses are slow. Well, like my realistic goal now is I want to talk to like maybe four or five more farmers and then I'll feel good about writing my thesis. But at first, my goal was like 20, 25 farmers I wanted to interview. And then for a survey, we were hoping to get like maybe 100 responses. So far, we have, I think, like 17. Ronnie Horn, the Washington County Extension agent, sent the survey out to people in his county. Horn, who is also a farmer, does not use his 1986 poultry houses to raise turkeys anymore. Instead, he uses them to store feed for cattle and 500 round bales of hay. He says many producers in this part of the state use the out-of-commission structures after they stop producing poultry. You know, and so that's what happens to a lot of them is they use them for their cattle operations more than anything, storing hay or equipment, or they turn one into a shop where they can work on their equipment. Washington County is the second highest poultry producing county in the state. And Horn says farmers can find themselves with leftover houses because they might need to build new ones or decide to stop farming turkeys or chickens. Horn says some producers are selling their farms for reasons like development, but mostly it's the upkeep costs. He says newer chicken houses should stay in production longer. Now what happens is chicken houses become outdated. So, you know, at one point chicken houses walls had curtains. Well, now they all have solid walls or equipment changes or they just age and they're just not as efficient. Because Arkansas has a high amount of poultry production in the region, Susan Rupp, the CEO of Enviroscape's Ecological Consulting, says there are several natural resource management issues. This is one of the reasons she came up with the vision for the project Warsham is working on. With time, the roof can start to collapse and expose those soils to the external elements, wind, rain, that sort of thing. So that will actually allow 
penetration of a lot of those high concentrated nutrients that were in that broiler house to seep into our groundwater system. The Practice 360 process might differ depending on the landscape. Rupp says historically what happens is the structure is taken down after scraping off about eight inches of soil. Then wood chips are incorporated into the ground and native grasses are planted on top of it. Although Rupp says another issue is seepage from the houses, from a landowner perspective, if producers have not found some other use for the houses, like for storage or livestock, they are sitting empty. It's land that could be remediated and used for another purpose that could possibly bring additional income or new income to those landowners. And those are some of the issues we're trying to explore with this project. Rupp says this practice is nationally available, but it depends on the state's landowner interest in the program and the natural resource need of the state. So water, as we all know, doesn't stay just on one site. It eventually gets filtered into our water table, which gets filtered into our waterways, which then eventually make their way downstream to other communities. For Ozarks at Large and the Bruce and Ann Applegate Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. After months of unseasonably cool spring temperatures and more than plentiful rains, the climate suddenly on June 10th turned terribly hot and dry. And forecasts indicate this trend is expected to persist for a while. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froehlich checked in with our region's lead meteorologist as well as a U.S. Army Corps of Engineer hydrologist to assess current conditions and future risks. Gabe Knight is the White River System Engineer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers based in Little Rock. He manages the strategic hydrology, hydraulics, and water resources along the 700-mile-long waterway. The White River originates in the Boston Mountains in northwest Arkansas, flows north into southern Missouri, curving back south into Arkansas, confluencing with the Mississippi River. Beaver Lake is one of four constructed reservoirs built on the White River for flood control, power generation, and water supplies, all of which Knight has closely monitored for 13 years now. And despite prolonged high heat and dry weather occurring, Beaver Lake remains full, he says. Well, actually, we had uh, significant spring rain this year. We were about 30% above average in the months of March through May. So Beaver Lake is currently sitting on about three plus feet of surplus water or flood storage. So that is water that we temporarily hold um, after heavy rainfall to reduce flooding downstream. And once we remove that last three feet or so, we'll be setting at 100% conservation storage, meaning we have 100% of the storage that is allocated for water supply, hydropower, and environmental stewardship in the reservoir itself. The top of the flood pool, or the maximum reservoir level, when it's brim full of water, is 1,130 feet. As of early this week, the lake level is down 6 feet to around 1,124 feet. Conservation pool level is slightly over 1,120 feet. That's stored water to be used for municipal, domestic, industrial, agricultural, and recreational purposes. But Knight says there's really no need to conserve water right now. We're still in flood pool. We're still releasing water for flood risk management purposes, and that will continue for about, you know, the next oh, three to four weeks at Beaver. So until the lake reaches the normal conservation storage, none of the water extracted for uh, water supply purposes counts against the allocated storage of the water user. So at this time, they could extract as much water as they wanted, and it's going to come from that flood control pool and, and not count against their total allocated storage and conservation pool. Several water districts draw municipal drinking water from Beaver Lake, and with demand for electricity especially high during this summer's heat wave, Beaver Dam, located in Carroll County and constructed for flood control, also generates hydroelectric power distributed by Southwestern Power Administration. They withdraw water from the reservoir as needed um, and, and they have a specific amount of storage that they cannot exceed. Um, but once we do recede down into that conservation pool and it's up to the users uh, within that, uh, that zone, more than likely Southwestern Power will be drawing more uh, storage than the water supply users since they own about um, 
probably about seven times the amount of storage for water supply. Water supply is, is a pretty small uh, percent of the conservation storage in Beaver Lake. A flash drought, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor, is developed in portions of Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri. It refers to a rapid onset of abnormally high temperatures, clear skies, and scant rainfall. Mark Plate is a forecaster in charge with the National Weather Service in Tulsa. A few lucky folks have gotten an isolated downpour here and there, but most places have stayed pretty dry since about the 10th of June. And with the drying of the ground, that just allows the temperatures to heat up even more than they would normally. So kind of leading to a what's turning out to be a pretty hot summer, the hottest since around 2012. When an extreme drought withered forests and dried up water supplies, especially remote rural water districts, water levels plummeted on Beaver Reservoir, but not enough to impair any water intake systems. Heavier than normal rainfall that we had in May through the first part of June will help in the long term. Beaver Lake, when full, covers 28,000 acres with a shoreline of 449 miles, a boundary strictly marked and maintained as untouched forest by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Noel Ottaviano owns a private dock on Beaver Lake in Benton County where he lives with his family, so has to monitor water levels, which fluctuate. You kind of have to keep an eye on the lake level so that your dock doesn't either get stranded up on the land or get stuck out in the water so far that you've got to get a rowboat to, uh, uh, to get out to it. Otaviano suggests anyone interested in Beaver Lake metrics should download the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Little Rock District app on their smartphone. What it has on it is uh, charts of the lake level, the current lake level. Something that they do every day during the week is a forecast for what the lake level is going to be based on the amount of water that's uh, actually flowing into the lake, uh, how many inches of water in the lake. To find the app, search USACE Little Rock. Now, in closing, as we follow the news, a once-in-a-lifetime drought has for months occurred in portions of the western U.S., causing reservoirs like Lake Mead to reach record low levels. Theoretically, because it has yet to happen here, if Beaver Reservoir does drastically recede due to a historic drought, that would turn the lake into what hydrologists call a dead pool. That means no water discharged for hydropower, which also serves to recharge waterways downstream along the White River system. And we could expect strict water conservation measures. The seasonal temperature outlook, according to the National Weather Climate Prediction Center, shows well above normal temperatures through October, with considerably less rainfall expected. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. COVID-19 cases in Arkansas continue to tick up. The Arkansas Department of Health reports more than 630 new cases in the last 24-hour testing period, and new case counts have been on a steady rise since the 1st of July. There are more than 16,000 active cases in the state. That's the highest number since winter. More than 11,600 Arkansans have died from the virus. The Oklahoma State Department of Health is reminding residents to be diligent as the virus numbers rise in that state. An advisory from the Oklahoma State Department of Health indicates with home, non-reportable tests readily available, the actual number of new cases in the state isn't clearly known, but it is clear transmission is increasing across Oklahoma. The department is advising people who are symptomatic to stay home to slow the spread of COVID-19. The founder of a major executive search firm headquartered in Rogers has died. Cameron Smith, the founder of Cameron Smith and Associates, died yesterday from complications with his battle from cancer. Smith moved from California to northwest Arkansas in 1994 and started his firm when there were fewer than 50 supplier teams in Bentonville. Forbes has named the firm one of the best executive search firms in the nation. He was also a co-founder of the Doing Business in Bentonville speaker series and the software company Shiloh Technologies. Voters in Rogers and Benville will decide if there are to be Sunday sales of alcohol in either or both cities. A group supporting the move, Keep Our Dollars Local, announced yesterday enough of the collected signatures to place the matter on the November ballot have been certified. 
And the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust is accepting a donation of 25 acres along Wildcat Creek near Tawnytown. According to a statement from the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust, the land is being donated by Betty Hinshaw to create a one-of-a-kind nature preserve as a habitat for the conservation of grassland birds. The Betty Hinshaw Bird Sanctuary is scheduled to open to the public this autumn. The 2022 Fayetteville Roots Festival is August 25th through the 27th. This festival of roots music, local food, and Ozark culture will feature national and local performers and chefs at numerous events throughout Fayetteville. Event tickets, passes to local restaurant takeovers, late-night stage tickets, and more are available at FayettevilleRoots.org. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. This is Ozarks at Large. Buckminster Fuller was born in Massachusetts and educated in Massachusetts and Maine. During his lifetime, the architect, inventor, and entrepreneur became a worldwide household name. There is a definite Fuller influence here, too. Both the Buckyball on the edge of the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art Campus in Bentonville and the reconstructed Fly's Eye in the middle of the campus are direct nods to Fuller. In fact, the 50-foot Fly's Eye is the largest of just three original prototypes of the circular housing structure hand-fabricated by Fuller. A new book, Inventor of the Future, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller by Alec Navala Lee, examines the complicated, sometimes confusing life of Buckminster Fuller. We reached Alec Novella Lee by phone last week. He says there are many ways to consider the extraordinary life of Buckminster Fuller. The one that I found really useful is to think of Fuller as the prototype of the modern startup founder. So if you look at his ideas, his strategies, you know, uh, the way he structured his um, career, it's very similar to people like Steve Jobs, even to Elon Musk, you know, uh, at, the, at the highest level, but, you know, down to uh, people who are trying to start companies now in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, the, the, the approach that he took was very similar. And it's actually not an accident. You know, he was someone who was a role model and an inspirational figure to uh, technologists in the 70s, you know, when the personal computer revolution was actually happening. And you can really see his legacy uh, in that same field today. You mentioned that this is, you know, one way that you could come through his life. I'm wondering for you, how did that approach reveal itself? Um, so I first encountered Fuller um, in uh, high school, and I grew up in the Bay Area. And the uh, sort of um, introduction that I had to Fuller was through the Holder's Catalog, uh, which was sort of this uh, guide to tools and books for the counterculture that Stuart Brand founded in the late 60s. And um, Brand was a big Fuller fan. Um, and if you look at his influence and the people that were reading the catalog at the time, again, there's this amazing overlap with the people who would go on to uh, catalyze the personal computer uh, revolution. And if you look at the history of that period, it, it's very clear that Fuller was in the air. Um, and the, the more you look at Fuller's life through that lens, you sort of see someone who, um, you know, at first glance, it seems like he did so many different things. It's hard to find an overarching pattern there. But you see him as a startup founder who had some visionary ideas about how technology could change people's lives. All of uh, his projects sort of fall into place. You know, everything he did was an expression of a certain vision about design and technology and the way it can be used to solve problems. So it just ended up being a very useful way of um, making sense of this very uh, long and complicated career. He became a household name during his lifetime, obviously. He was also forward-thinking when it came to, you know, concepts about sustainability and how to live sustainably. And does that sort of dovetail with his ideas about startups? Yeah. So one of Fuller's, like, very earliest um, uh, concepts that he pushed very hard in his writings and later in his inventions was this idea of doing more with less with efficiency. And he, he really approached it almost as a design problem. You know, he wanted to initially build a house uh, in a factory that could be delivered anywhere in the country. And to do that, it would have to be very light, you know, and it, it had to use materials in a very efficient way. And so this led him to, into thinking about things like using tension structures and using materials like aluminum instead of conventional building materials. But at the same time, you know, the, the bigger picture here is one of, um, 
sustainability and efficiency. And for him, it was a very pragmatic thing. You know, he was not necessarily an environmentalist. Uh, he was someone who was very interested in technology's potential for doing things, uh, you know, using um, resources in the most efficient way. So a lot of those ideas ended up being adopted by the environmental movement. And he certainly is a huge influence on, on um, people who were thinking about ecology, let's say, in the 70s. But, you know, it kind of comes out of, again, the same place, this, this idea of design efficiency. So for him, it was really a practical concern about how to improve uh, people's lives and build these inventions and, and structures that would enable that. And it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned he added during his lifetime and I think still now appeals to what I guess we would call a counterculture as well as establishment. Right. I mean, you think of I don't know. There's just a wide appeal of his work and his aesthetic. Yeah, Fuller is a really you know interesting character because on the one hand he was very willing to go after the establishment to get what he wanted. So he he works with arch capitalists and heads of state, you know, trying to get these projects funded. Um, but at the same time, as you point out, you know, he had a huge appeal to the counterculture, and, and a lot of that comes out of sort of um, his strategy for getting things done. Uh, he, early on, he realized that he was not the kind of person who could probably found a company in the conventional sense. So he ended up doing a lot of his projects through uh, college seminars. So he would go from college to college teaching students and uh, building a dome, for example, over the course of six weeks and then moving on to the next college. And to motivate young people, because you know these are the people who are unattached, who are enthusiastic, who are willing to sign up for his, his cause, you have to have a certain persona. And he semi-deliberately became this uh, futurist visionary and talked about things like social change in ways that I think were, were earnest, but they were also designed to appeal to the exact people he needed at that time. So, you know, his, you know, he, he was known as being this older person who had this special dynamic with younger people, but that wasn't an accident. It was, it was a crucial part of his strategy for getting things done. When you're writing a biography of someone who is so complicated, so complex, uh, so uh, varied in, in, in career, I imagine it's both a blessing and not a curse, but a challenge with how much he's written, how much his collaborators have written, how much did you have to go through? Well, one thing about Fuller that is uh, worth noting is that he had one of the largest personal archives in history. So if you go to Stanford, uh, there are hundreds of boxes of uh, correspondence, of his journals, of notes and sketches. And, you know, it, it wasn't possible to go through all of it, but it was important to me to try to at least focus on the really important um, episodes in his career because, you know, Fuller was a myth maker, you know, and again, it was part of his strategy. He, he told stories about himself, and sometimes he would fictionalize uh, aspects of his career to make for a better story. Hmm. And so it ended up being crucial for me to go back to those primary sources and work through thousands of pages of documents and letters from the time to kind of uh, tease out what was the real story, what, what actually happened, as opposed to the version that Fuller told people later on. Would you say he was an optimistic person? Um, I think in some ways, yes. Uh, he became more pessimistic later on, and I think that's part of his personality that was always there. Um, I think, as I said before, he, he kind of evolved to appeal to the people he needed. And I think if you're a young person, especially during a period like the late 60s, early 70s, there, there's a, a huge appeal in this person who is telling you that, you know, we actually can change the world. There, there are certain things we can do that are concrete steps uh, that involve design and, you know, the efficient use of technology, you know, as opposed to um, social justice uh, approaches, right? Fuller was not really an, an activist in the way we think of them today, um, but he was able to sketch out this utopian vision of the future that um, I think a lot of people found appealing and that became more pronounced in public as he became more of a public intellectual and, you know, sort of realized that this was a useful way of motivating, uh, you know, the people around him. I, I think in private, he was more pessimistic, you know, about, especially toward the end, about the way the world had evolved uh, during his lifetime. And, and I think when he died, he felt that things had not quite gone as he had planned. Fair to call him a genius? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I make this very clear in the book that, you know, even though I'm debunking certain things that he said about himself and 
uh, certain claims that he made. Uh, he was a complete genius, uh, you know, number one, purely as a intuitive visual thinker. He had these amazing uh, geometrical ideas that, again, kind of came out of practical problems he was trying to solve that ended up being very useful later on in fields like virology uh, and chemistry that are really valuable and, and useful. Um, I think a lot of his uh, inventions were flawed, but the process that went, went into them, you know, I think is really intriguing. And, and secondly, you know, he was a genius at getting things done. Like mm -hmm. he, he accomplished more in one lifetime than, you know, most of us ever will. And, you know, part of the point of the book is to say, how did this happen? You know, it didn't happen by accident. It was something that he learned how to do, you know, and he did it so well that uh, he's kind of become the model for a lot of people who came after him who are trying to accomplish similar things. All right. Finally, you mentioned getting things done. I'm always amazed when a biographer uh, can, can get somebody's life into the book. How did you know you were done? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, you know, I had a deadline to meet, and <laughs> right. I had to stop. Uh, you know, and, and honestly, this book could have been twice the length it currently is. I mean, it, it's a big book. It's 600-plus pages, including notes. Um, and there's a lot of interesting stuff that I cut uh, that I kind of hint at in the book that I hope future scholars will pick up on. Um, but no, I mean, to me, it was just important to kind of get the accurate chronology of his life in one book because there are some excellent books out there I talk about um, particular aspects of his career in detail that, that are very, uh, you know, worthwhile books. But there hasn't been a book yet that kind of lays out the whole picture, you know, from birth to death. And Fuller only makes sense to me if you can look at how he evolved over time. Um, and so I felt like I had to get his life, uh, you know, within uh, one pair of covers, uh, you know, as, as much as I could. And then once that was done, you know, Again, ideally, in the future, other writers will pick up and develop other parts in more detail that I wasn't able to cover uh, in this book. Well, congratulations on what's in between that one pair of covers, and thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you so much. Alec Navalli-Lee is the author of the new book, Inventor of the Future, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller. That will be available August 2nd. Our conversation took place last week. Just ahead, more books and how anybody in Oklahoma can take part in a statewide program to discuss books and the humanities. That's in about two minutes on Ozarks at Large. The 74th Annual Arkansas Farm Bureau's Officers and Leaders Conference is Thursday and Friday at the Rogers Convention Center. The Farm Bureau expects about 500 people to attend the conference, being held in Rogers for just the second time ever. Arkansas Senator John Bozeman will receive the Golden Plow. That's the highest award given by the American Farm Bureau to a sitting member of Congress. Senator Bozeman is the third Arkansan to receive that award after Congressman David Pryor in 1989 and Senator Blanche Lincoln in 2008. Senator Bozeman is the ranking member of the Senate Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry Committee. He is, by the way, seeking a third term in the Senate and faces Democrat Natalie James, Libertarian Kenneth Cates, and three independent candidates in November. Have you ever seen a cyclist pedal by with a GoPro attached to the helmet and wondered what the footage captured might look like? Later this month, you might be able to get a glimpse. The Filmed by a Bike Festival is coming to Arkansas Public Theater in downtown Rogers Saturday. It's presented by Pedal It Forward. The collection of films claims to be the world's best bike movies. Every May, Filmed by Bike hosts an extensive film festival weekend in their hometown of Portland, Oregon, with more than 60 films. After the Portland Festival wraps up, Filmed by Bike sends their movie collections on the road to more than 40 tour stops every year. Sponsorship dollars raised from this show will help provide funding for Pedal It Forward to continue to grow their mission in northwest Arkansas. More details about Saturday's event can be found at arkansaspublictheater.org slash tickets. On the next episode of The R Word. Racism is actually an entire cultural order that has been created and sustained and has taken so much from African-American communities. And so if you see that it's a broken cultural order, what we call a cultural disorder, then the answer to that is not just personal repentance or relational reconciliation or institutional reform, it's actually cultural repair. And that is how we, we get to reparations as a meaningful category. Our co-host, Lowell Taylor, speaks with Greg Thompson, co-author of the book Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance, about why reparations matter, 
what the Christian church's role could be in facilitating racial healing in America, and why using the words white supremacy is important. The R Word, a limited run podcast series available now at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. And when you go to KUAF.com, you can always find out more about our other podcasts. And don't forget, there is a podcast version of Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. For nearly 40 years, Oklahomans have been meeting to discuss books. The Let's Talk About It book club stretches from the panhandle to Poto. The concept? Offer free books and invite readers to gather for a discussion led by an expert in a field that is a subject in that book. The program was developed by the American Library Association, and it's used in different ways across the country. Oklahoma Humanities has served as the facilitator for the program in Oklahoma since 1985. Sarah Oswoski is program officer at Oklahoma Humanities and says the Oklahoma version of Let's Talk About It is in about 45 communities and is centered on the humanities. Which includes a lot of different disciplines and subjects, history, literature, languages, but it's really um, all of our Let's Talk About It programs are, are based on humanities themes, which um, kind of shed light on the human experience through literature. So we have a bunch of different themes that deal with Oklahoma topics, uh, such as the Dust Bowl, um, several different ones that deal with Native American history, or what we call the Oklahoma experience. Um, so we're looking at all of those through, a, you know, what, what makes it a human-based experience to live through something like that, and how do we think about that and talk about that with literature? And, you know, what I love about this is you can, the, the Oklahoma experience, of course, if you're in the panhandle, might be a little bit different than, say, if you're in the Washita Mountain adjacent area of Poto or whatever, but there can be some unifying themes is what I'm hearing. Yes, and that is um, the other unique aspect to our version of Let's Talk About It is all of our book discussions are led by humanities scholars. Um, so we have a network of humanities scholars that uh, are on a list with us. And when an organization signs up to host our program, we give them that list and they can find scholars who are local to their communities uh, to lead these book discussion groups. Usually uh, these scholars are retired professors, active professors at, at universities across the state, including lots of our regional universities, including uh, Panhandle State University out there. Um, so we have a great network of folks across the state who can bring their education, their background, their knowledge to shed light on, um, you know, the background of the book, the life of the author, how that book ties into the humanities theme, and how that book connects to the other books in the humanities theme. So that is the role of our scholars, always looking for that common thread, that, I, that unique experience that makes these places unique and interesting across the state. Not every Oklahoman, of course, lives in Oklahoma City or Tulsa. So one of the things about Let's Talk About It is you have, I don't know, franchises or bureaus or satellite sort of thing. So no Oklahoman is that far away from a possible conversation. Yes. So this fall, um, the average Oklahoman is no more than 30 miles from the closest Let's Talk location. Um, we've seen an increase in program locations this fall, kind of rebuilding from COVID. Um, and so we are have a wide geographic distribution this fall. We'll have programs uh, from Guymon to Atoka and from Miami to Lawton. So we are really in every corner of the state this fall. Um, so no Oklahoman is too far from a, a book discussion group that is totally free for them to attend. Obviously, it might be different in Diamond than it is in Miami, but but what is the sort of format that takes place during one of these Let's Talk About It sessions? Yeah, so they are usually taking place at libraries, museums, or local nonprofits. Um, and so usually this, the project director on site will give an introduction, um, welcome everybody to the, to the book discussion group. And then the scholar really kicks things off with um, a short 30 to 40 minute kind of lecture, setting the, the stage for the book discussion, highlighting some important points that they noticed. Maybe they'll talk about what they liked about the book, what they didn't like about the book, um, and setting the tone for the discussion. After that, the book discussion will break into small groups if there's enough people present, or maybe they'll all just stay together talking together. 
and kind of go through a list of questions that the scholar has come up with to help to help guide that discussion along. Um, after those small group discussions, everybody will kind of reconvene to talk about the main takeaways, what they liked or what they didn't like about the book. What are some of the books that will be in the next season? Yeah, so I wanted to talk especially about Miami's program uh, this season. They have been a participant in Let's Talk for a really long time at the Miami Public Library, and they are doing our theme, Many Trails, Many Tribes, um, which focuses on Native American theme, American literature. Um, so they'll be reading Last of the Mohicans, but we also have, um, you know, a Native author in Scott Mamaday, who's an Oklahoman. One of his books, House of Dawn, um, is going to be a part of that group. Um, so they are particularly wanted to do that theme. I know a lot of our Let's Talk About It groups are very interested in the Native American themes. Um, another one that's going to be local to your area will be in Locust Grove. Um, and they're, they're reading a theme called crime and comedy, which takes a different kind of tack. So not all of our themes are so serious. We realize that literature uh, is fun and should be interesting and fun to read. Um, and so that theme includes books by P.G. Wodehouse and Janet Ivanovich. So some of the really popular, you know, lighthearted mystery type books that are very popular in public libraries, that's what they'll be reading in Locust Grove uh, at the Rural Museum of Rural Oklahoma Museum of Poetry. Wait, I'm embarrassed. The Rural Oklahoma Museum of Poetry? I didn't know this existed. This sounds wonderful. I did not know it existed either before I started working with Let's Talk About It. Yeah, they have a fantastic project director out there um, who is really building a great community of readers in Locust Grove. Um, and this is their third or fourth season in a row now to participate. And so that's also the benefit of Let's Talk About It is that it is drawing Oklahomans to these unique locations across the state that maybe a lot of people don't know about because um, we want to build capacity with those organizations and strengthen their visitors as well. And having great literature is just one way for them to get people through the door as well. Sarah Olszewski is a program officer at Oklahoma Humanities. We talked with her by Zoom last week. The books for readers are provided for free. Sponsors of the program include the Kirkpatrick Family Fund, the McCaslin Foundation, and Oklahoma City University. Readers in Arkansas can take part in a community read this month. The If All Arkansas Read the Same Book event is coming up Thursday, July 28th at 6.30 p.m. Emily St. John Mandel will lead a live discussion of her best-selling novel, Sea of Tranquility. Her other novels include The Glass Hotel and Station Eleven. The virtual event is free. Registration can be found at library.arkansas.gov. Sea of Tranquility is a novel of art, time, love, and plague that takes the reader from Vancouver Island in 1912 to a dark colony on the moon 500 years later. The If All Arkansas Read the Same Book Community Read Project is made possible in part by a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services. The 2022 Fayetteville Roots Festival is August 25th through the 27th. This festival of roots music, local food, and Ozark culture will feature national and local performers and chefs at numerous events throughout Fayetteville including the Fayetteville Public Library, Maxine's, George's Majestic Lounge, and Roots HQ. Event tickets, passes to local restaurant takeovers, late-night stage tickets, and more are available at FayettevilleRoots.org. Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville offers playful exploration of the arts and sciences with new experiences and activities popping up daily for kids and families to enjoy all summer long. The Amazium is open every day except Tuesdays. Amazium.org to discover more. This is Ozarks at Large. With me is Catherine Sheralds, our militant grammarian. Welcome back. Thanks. Kyle, you know those TV segments where smart aleck people with microphones stop people on the street and ask them simple question that the interviewees don't know the answer to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to give some of the interviewees a break and think that they just are stymied by having a mic shoved in their faces. And I always think that they ask 200 people and then take the oh, four absolutely. that didn't know, absolutely. that seemed the silliest, yes. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, but there may be a more fundamental reason for some. They're too young to know. And you don't mean that as an insult. It's no. just a matter of experience. Yeah. WordGenius.com has identified some idioms, catchphrases, and sayings. This is fantastic. <laughs> that we still use today that have changed with the times. Because Rachel Sanchez-Smith, who works on Ozarks at Large, is 
Lord, almost a third my age. <laughs> and we throw back idioms, you know, like I'll bring her one. Do you, have you ever heard this? Uh-huh. And she'll say no. Yeah. Part of it is also cultural background, sure. right? Sure, sure, I mean, absolutely. if you grow up one place, you might... It still may be yeah. thriving as an idiom. In other places, and, it's and not. And when you learn English as a second language, you know, idioms just probably blow your mind. As they do, I'm trying to learn Spanish sometimes. Yeah. And and I go, how can that mean that? You know, it's an idiom. There was one time years ago I was walking with two. I was probably in my 40s, and I was walking with two coworkers who were in their early 20s. And they asked me, how far is Eureka Springs? I said, well, as the crow flies. And they both just give me these blank looks. <laughs> like, why are you bringing are you aviary talking? Yeah, this? really. <laughs> and that's why, oh, you don't. So I'm excited uh, about this. Okay, good. All right. I saw such a gotcha segment recently on, with the microphone and the smart alecky guy that interviewed Harvard students. Why do you think they chose Harvard students? Because they are thought to be the smartest <laughs> Right. The video shown, of course, featured the students who didn't know the answers. Of course. What tickled me was that some of the students simply walked away rather than to be shown up by the microphone jockey. Mm. (laughs) But I would... It's just not a fair sort of... But whatever. Yeah, it's not. But I was shocked that a student didn't know what words the letters WWW stood for. So World Wide Web. Right. But you know what? We haven't... Use those for a generation. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. He's so why young. would you know them? Yeah. And uh, the word genius addressed it. When the Internet was still in its infancy as a public resource, you were required to type www. Yeah. Before each website domain in a browser. Now that websites automatically populate this into the search bar, you don't need to type it. And the phrase World Wide Web has fallen out of fashion. They might not even be aware that www is in there. I can tell when I have someone in this studio and I ask them, well, where can people learn more? If they are of a certain age, I don't know, it's 45 or wherever. Do they start with HTTP? No, they do not do that. (laughs) But if they start with WWW, Uh Mm -hmm. you know that they are digital um, immigrants. Yeah. Yeah. And if they just, yeah. and the chances are if they just say such and such dot com, they're natives. Mm -hmm. Or they've been doing it long enough. But yeah, I love Mm -hmm. that example. Yeah. Here are some phrases that you and I remember well, but young folks may not understand. When you were a child, how did you decrease the airflow in your dad's sedan? Oh, you rolled up the window. (laughs) That's right. And today? Well, you just push a button. Yeah, right. Um, We don't actually roll them up anymore, but we still use that phrase. See, this is going to be great because I'm going to ask, Rachel doesn't know this yet, but I'm going to ask her, like, do you still say roll up the window? Mm -hmm. Because maybe you don't if Mm -hmm. it's not a thing anymore. And, you know, the thing that occurred to me when I was writing this I can't remember the the time uh, that it went out of uh, mm-hmm. use. The little window. Oh, the vent. The oh, cigarette. I love the little window. <laughs> I just remember that's where adults would put their cigarettes. Uh, right. I couldn't figure out any other reason for that little triangular vent. <laughs> right. But didn't they go out of fashion before roll the rolling thing? I think so, and I think it's an aerodynamic thing. Yeah, it could be, because if you leave it open, it messes yeah. with it a little bit, yeah. I suppose. Okay. Uh, Kyle, if you want to ask someone to push the buttons on a cell phone to call someone, how might you ask using an old-fashioned phrase? Will you dial up mm-hmm. X? Before cell phones and push-button landline phones, people used rotary phones where you would have to spin a dial to call any number. The concept of dialing a number has stuck with us to the present day. Yeah, though I don't think I've heard someone say dial Not in a recently. long time. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, yeah. And was it your nephew who was flummoxed by a desk set phone a few years ago? No, it was a—I mean, he's a de facto nephew. He's uh-huh. he's a son of two of my best friends, and we uh-huh. were in an escape room. Uh-huh. And he just hand—and one of the clues was on this old phone, and he just handed it to us. said, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> Picked it up and tried to put an email message—I mean, a text message in it or something. To his, his credit, he just looked at it and said, I don't know. <laughs> Take a dinosaur. <laughs> okay, boomer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kyle, perhaps youngsters know what this word means today, but I bet they don't know its origin. What does CCing mean? Oh, right. Carbon copy, mm-hmm. which you used to have to put carbon paper between That's two pieces exactly of typing paper. Exactly right. The bane um, of my existence of ninth grade typing. Well, and, and were you on the high school newspaper? I was. We we typed. Uh, yeah, we did too. Yeah, we yeah. did some of that. It wasn't the same carbon copy, but you created something that you put on the mimeograph 
machine it, and then you sat there and smelled it before you distributed it, right? <laughs> oh, we lost the younger demo with the mimeograph <laughs> reference. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and where do youngsters encounter the acronym today? Oh, it's on email. Mm -hmm. right. Would you CC someone? Well, do they do email anymore? That's what I'm finding. Yeah. And I, is it? It's not. It's not on. I mean, I don't use uh, Twitter and Instagram yeah. or anything. No, no, no. Like I don't think there's it, nothing like yeah, that. No. So it'll probably go out totally out because they're not using email much no. anymore. If you don't use email, that's okay with me. <laughs> So, as you said, people used to copy handwritten messages mm -hmm. by using special carbon paper that allowed the pressure of the pen and later the typewriter to make another copy. Today, we just use a photocopier. Right. But the idea of making copies still lingers in email terminology. Now, let's go back to way before we were kids for mm -hmm. some phrases still used today. Today, Kyle, someone might be excluded from a club by the votes of the members in form of a secret balloting not involving pen and paper what's it called like if you're blackballed mm -hmm. okay right and what exactly is it well here i don't know if i've made this up well you mean what does that mean uh, yeah let's uh, uh, well i mean let's say or how is it performed you know in order to be in this exclusive club you can get no more than two black balls. Uh -huh. People who secretly people say no. have either a red or a black ball. Right. I guess the other colors or might work just, too. Yeah. And and if they put the black ball in there, that right. means they don't want them. But you don't know who did it. Right. 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 Uh, in the 18th century, new club members were admitted through anonymous voting with different colored balls. A red ball was a positive answer, while a black ball was a negative. To be blackballed meant you were found wanting, cast out, or denied membership. We don't use the physical balls anymore, but right. to be blackballed still means that you're getting excluded. Right. We've discussed this next one before, Kyle, but I'd be surprised if you remember its origin. I certainly didn't. If something happens at the last minute, almost before it's too late, what phrase do we use for that? It happened... Not the 11th hour? No. It happened... Oh, in the nick of time. Yeah, there In the go. nick of time, yeah. Do you remember the origin that we talked about a long time ago? No, because the one I remember is the one I think I was wrong about, thinking it was something to do with sewing. Mm, no. it In the 18th century, business owners would keep track of debts, interests, and loans right. on tally sticks yes. with notches carved on the wood. Now, what, did they not have pencils? They had pencils well, in the 18th Well, maybe pencils were expensive. Oh, lead. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, you yeah. just didn't have okay. lead everywhere. Yeah. Uh, when you arrived to pay off your debt right before the next notch was carved, you had arrived in the nick of time. Ah. Finally, Kyle, as a journalist or as a student, we've both done a lot of this. We often call it pulling an all-nighter these days, but what's the old-fashioned phrase for it? Burning mm -hmm. the midnight oil. That's it. Do you know its origin? Oh, for an oil lamp. I mean, mm -hmm. the wick or, or whatever you would call that thing is almost mm -hmm. gone because you've been working, you've been needing light for so long. Yeah. Uh, it's a reference to the times before electricity when houses were lit by oil-powered lamps. Yeah. It refers to staying up late and burning the oil and creating more light for yourself at midnight. Now, see, that's one of the idioms that obviously predates us mm -hmm. for its literal meaning. But we know. But I think I can't remember not having the image of what that uh -huh, meant. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But maybe it's because we were connected to a generation that did know that it. Did. And maybe that's probably. part of how And idioms especially growing up in Arkansas, uh, it probably wasn't that long ago no. that, no. you know, in that's rural right. areas. Yeah, that, right. that I remember uh, as a child, I remember ice boxes. Yeah. Uh -huh. But also, I think we learned, you know, truth or myth or whatever about Abe Lincoln. And I think there was, oh. he would burn the midnight oil studying for law or something. Yeah, but You'd what see did, a picture. wasn't that candles? Not my school book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I guess we won't flog a dead horse. <laughs> oh, God. Our, our militant grammarian is Catherine Geralds. NPR's live coverage of the January 6th hearings in the United States House continues Thursday night. KUAF will provide live coverage beginning at 7 Thursday evening. A lingering news story in Bella Vista appears to be nearing an end. Remember the stump dump fire? 
That was the fire that burned underground under an illegal landfill for a long time. In fact, our then-reporter Zuzana Sitek was reporting on that fire and its aftermath in early 2019 for us. Well, yesterday, attorneys who had been working on a settlement regarding the fire and its environmental consequences announced a $6.3 million settlement has been reached in the case. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences will use a grant of more than $700,000 to purchase equipment to provide long-distance learning opportunities for 36 sites across the state. A UAMS spokesman says almost half of Arkansas's rural population live too far from sufficient medical providers and often rely on digital health care facilities that have not received updated equipment in a decade. And more baseball players with connections to the University of Arkansas are closer to becoming professionals after being drafted during the second day of the Major League Baseball draft on Monday. Shortstop Jalen Battles was selected in the fifth round by Tampa Bay. Pitcher Evan Taylor was picked in the ninth round by Miami and also drafted in the ninth round was pitcher Connor Nolan by the Cubs. Another Razorback went in the ninth round, catcher Michael Turner. And the player with perhaps the best name in Razorback baseball history, Zebulon Vermillion, was a 10th-round selection of the New York Mets. On tomorrow's Ozarks at Large, the governing body and documents that predated the United States Constitution and influenced its content. Um, Another one that's pretty primary is the separation of powers, where, like for the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the roles of nations and clans, they didn't try to assume each other's roles. There wasn't any trying to um, do what your role is and also recognizing that we all have a role to play and we're not going to overstep. A conversation with Dr. Rebecca Webster, assistant professor at University of Minnesota Duluth, about the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the roots of democratic principles. She'll be at the Museum of Native American History this weekend in Bentonville, and she's with us tomorrow on Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m., On KUAF 91.3, you can always hear the most recent edition of our show by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. Born in West Helena in 1920, William Caesar Warfield had a long singing career on stage and screen. And though he left the state at a young age, he described himself as an Arkansas boy from tip to toe. After serving in World War II, Warfield, who spoke four languages, began his career as the lead in a touring production of Call Me Mister. After his New York stage debut in 1950, he did an extended Australian tour before landing a role in Porgy and Bess, where he met soprano Leontine Price. Their 20-year marriage ended in 1972. His overseas performances included a German-language tour of Showboat, though his audience requested that he sing Old Man River in English. In 1984, he won a Grammy for his narration of Aaron Copeland's A Lincoln Portrait. Warfield appeared in several movies and television shows, but also performed in a number of operas, though he never received a major role, writing later that, Opera wasn't ready for me or any black male. He died in 2002. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Marble, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Anna Pope, Jacqueline Froelich and our militant grammarian Catherine Childs. Our theme written and performed by Daryl Sean. KUAF's engagement manager is Jasper Logan. Today's show produced in Studio 120 by Matthew Moore, who's sitting across the desk from me. Hello, Kyle. Hello, Matthew. Later today, after our conversation, you're going to be talking about the heat. That's right. I am going to have Darby Bybee of uh, 4029 coming in this afternoon, and we will have that story on tomorrow's show, talking about the heat, talking about the possibility of naming heat waves um, and what his thoughts are on that. So that'll be on tomorrow's show as well. And uh, if you are outside today, take all the precautions. This is serious stuff, especially in the Arkansas River Valley where temperatures are expected to be 108? Well over 100 degrees, yeah. Please be careful and hydrate. We will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 with a brand new edition of Ozarks at Large from Studio 120 at the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Kyle Kellums. Be safe. We'll talk again soon.